17-year-old Angela Freeman was last seen on September 10, 1993 here at the old Pizza Hut in Petal. This was the last place that we ever, that anybody ever saw her alive. 17 years old, five months pregnant. Her bloodstained car was just north of Perry County's Monette Bridge. There's a possibility she might be in the river, so we're checking the river right now with the dogs. Rescue workers are searching the river with dogs, and they are also searching the wooded area here. She was uh, coming in from work, and she gave me $80 to pay on her car that we found abandoned out here in Perry County. At this point, we really don't know any more than we did before until we can find her. We're still hoping that it's just not real, you know, that, that she's going to call and say she was, maybe she was abducted and will get away or something, but... Uh, it just really doesn't look good at all. And we're working hard every day. We want this case solved. Where are now with my home? Driving down Main Street in Petal one summer day, as Deborah Freeman passed the Wendy's restaurant, she saw a cute little gray Honda. It was like it was speaking to her. She pulled into the used car lot to take a closer look. As a single mom, Deborah knew she couldn't afford another car note, so it would have to be something her daughter Angela could swing from her part-time minimum wage job. Angela was 16 and raring to go, anywhere and everywhere, as most outgoing teens are at that age. If you remember from the last episode, sometimes when learning to drive, Angela was raring to go 100 miles an hour, backwards, out of the driveway or around curves headed toward a pond in her mama's car. But just making ends meet was hard enough for Deborah, and she needed her own car in one piece. So even if Angela had to share the cost, her mother knew she would be elated to have her own wheels. And it would give Deborah some peace of mind to know her daughter wasn't relying on acquaintances or strangers for rides where she wanted to go. It was a 1984 light gray Honda Accord and priced right at about $2,000. The note, doable at $80 a month. Deborah said Angela was overjoyed when she brought it home and Angela took great care of that car, paying her notes on time. It was her baby. But soon, Angela would be expecting a real baby, one that would require her to make some really tough decisions. You are listening to the third episode of Telling Lives, a reported podcast series covering old stories in a true way. I'm your host, Elizabeth Christian. In this episode, we're going to tell you about how life changed for Angela Freeman during that last year, 1993, before she went missing, and then take you out to the bridge where her car was discovered September 10th. And that symbol of pride and joy just a year before, would become a symbol of emptiness and unanswered questions.
Angela's life was about to change in ways that no one could have foreseen around that Christmas tree at Nanny and Papa's, their last holiday together as a family. We went to Lafayette. My mother lived down there at the time. And uh, he came uh, down there, too. So anyway, that was my last Christmas. I can remember with her, with him there. It was no longer dating him. Uh, uh, moving on, he moved on with another girlfriend, and she was supposed to be moving on, so she started dating this Larry Posey. They returned home from the holidays to school and work and prepared for birthday celebrations. Both Deborah and Angela had January birthdays. Deborah threw her daughter a 17th surprise birthday party at Little Ray's Seafood Restaurant on Highway 49 near Hardy Street, the main thoroughfare in Hattiesburg. Things were changing. Deborah's daughter was growing up too fast. She dropped out of school and ended a long term relationship with a young man six years her senior. Deborah had adapted and Angela had promised to earn her GED. 1993 was also a time of big change in the country. America saw a changing of the guard. After 12 years of Republican rule in the White House, Southern Democrat Bill Clinton was sworn in as the 42nd President of the United States. The week Clinton was sworn in, Angela Freeman of Petal turned 17, and 18-year-old Mississippi teen Lori Hill, seven months pregnant, vanished. Her car still running with the lights on was found at the end of her family's gravel driveway in neighboring Jones County. Hill's body was found several weeks later, but no one to date has paid for this crime. In fact, violent crime in America had been steadily rising since the Johnson era in the 1960s and reached its peak in 1993 before dropping sharply. I was 21 and already suffering disillusionment from the promise of the immortality of youth, having lost two friends the previous year, Fair, a childhood playmate killed at 18 by a drunk driver just after she graduated high school, and the second, George, an only child who had lost his mother years earlier, died at the hands of a mentally ill girlfriend. His life's blood dripping down the apartment complex staircase, greeting residents that November morning an image I can't erase still. Police came and searched their apartment, finding several items that had been stolen in recent break-ins from neighbors' apartments, along with a book of witchcraft and a pentagram painted on the wall. Police ruled it a suicide on the girl's word. She was the only one alive to tell what had transpired. Days later, I visited George's grave and apologized having argued with him over the $20 his girlfriend had stolen off my kitchen table. He'd said he'd work it off cutting grass, which he did, but we never spoke again. I thought there would be time. George's death and the lack of investigation done opened my eyes to the reality of crime and justice. Good people died, often way too young, and guilty people often went unpunished in this life. Jaded, I moved to Hattiesburg in May 1993 and entered my journalism program at Southern Miss. In May 2018, I began my research for this podcast series, and I visited with dozens of people 
close to Angela Freeman, trying to piece together the last few months of her life. The first place I lived upon moving to the Hub City in 1993 was an apartment community off North 40th Avenue. I didn't live there long, just for the summer, until with the help of my parents, I bought a house on Mamie Street, one of Hattiesburg's historic streets. Interestingly, I discovered that during this same time period, Angela also lived for a brief period with friends in an apartment off North 40th Avenue. Angela's life was more complicated than most kids her age. During the last year of her life, she lived at home with her mom, briefly with her grandparents, a short time with her uncle Roger and his family, and with at least a couple of different friends. Despite the stories about how sweet Angela was and how thoughtful she could be from her friends and family at that time, her soon-to-be stepfather was not a fan. So when things got too tough, Deborah acquiesced to Bill Stewart's demands, she said, and allowed Angela to seek shelter elsewhere. She loved her daughter, and she loved Bill. It was nice having a partner after a dozen years alone, but it was tough being caught between two strong personalities who both wanted things the way to which they had become accustomed. Angela confided some of her woes about their relationship to her uncle Roger Freeman. There were times when Deborah would have problems with her that I could talk to Angela and get you know more cooperation out of Angela from that perspective. I still feel like as Angela grew up, she still had lots of secrets, you know, that she didn't reveal. Her and her stepdad, that, the guy that Deborah married, you know, they didn't, didn't get along. And Angela was tight. That if she didn't like you, she's not gonna like you. And that's just the way it is. And he, you know, she had problems out of him before. He and I had discussions before, you know, as far as how he was supposed to treat her and, and everything, just being a protective uncle. She stood up to him. He didn't like anybody standing up to him. And, you know, especially from a female. He didn't want no slack from a female. And I think Angel still held a grudge because she felt like her mama had abandoned her to a point. Yeah, she was headstrong. Yeah. She would listen to me more. I reached out to Bill Stewart to give his memories for this podcast, but he said it had been so long ago that he didn't want to get involved. He did, however, ask my associate producer and me if we wanted to buy a motorcycle he was trying to sell. Rusty Keys, the detective in charge of Angela's case, said Deborah has spent too much time blaming herself. Deborah's beat herself up over how she, how Angela was raised. You know, Angela always had to take care of Angela. And Deborah loved her baby. She did. I mean, there's no doubt. And I think if she could do some things, do some things different, she would have. You know, I, and I've told Deborah this, and I know, I mean, she can't beat herself up. Right. That. I mean, you know, Angela made decisions, too. And some of those decisions probably weren't the best. Friend Melissa Austin McSwain said she and Angela were neighborhood buddies. She didn't sneak out a party like Angela was prone to do while they were growing up. She lived about four houses down from me. And so we knew each other from kind of the neighborhood. And 
we were friends, but we weren't best friends. In fact, she was kind of the wild, more outgoing than I was. I was more sheltered. Um, she was this time she kind of snuck out and done things that her mom didn't know anything about. I do remember that um, we was we sat at the same bus stop every morning. We would ride the bus together, and we would, you know, talk before school. She did not really like school. She was more interested in going out, you know, having fun. And I, I hate to say it, but she did seem to be more interested in partying, you know, at that time. Where she was 17, so this club or place, wherever she went, when she would sneak out at night, she would stay so long that when she would come to school, the last year I actually had a class with her, biology class. And she would sleep during the whole, during the whole, the whole class. Melissa's and Angela's family members all knew each other. Interestingly, both sets of parents were named Deborah and Bill, and both girls had little brothers. Melissa got emotional while she reminisced about Angela. I kind of knew her mother and stepdad and brother. I give her mother two letters that I had. That Angela had wrote me. I had bunches and bunches of letters, but for some reason I just kept those two. She made copies of them, and they weren't really anything in detail except for that, you know, like teenagers, right? Well, I love so and so. And she had said on the, you know, letters, I love Stephen, all over the letters. I know that at the time, she really loved. Stephen Lindsay. She borrowed my camera one time. And back then it was just, uh, you know, the little 35, 110. It was a 110 film. And I, I wish I had all that stuff. Uh, but it, it was the year 93. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know who took the pictures. But it was at her house where we lived on Trailwood Circle. I feel like her brother might have taken the pictures, but I'm not sure. But um, when one of them, she was holding a red rose, and she was kind of posing, you know, not in any provocative way, but she was dressed up nice. And um, But like I said, I let her borrow my camera, and I don't even know what was on the rest of the film, but... um, but her and Stephen had actually taken pictures in one of those little photo booths at the mall, black and white. I think I still have that in my photo album. One of the girls Angela used to sneak out with told me that Angela ran with a small, close-knit group of troubled girls. And Angela wasn't the only one to leave high school before graduation. Angela dropped out in the 10th grade in the spring of 1993. Her longtime friend, Casey Prynjanese, was actually expelled from Petal High. We became friends in, in, I believe it was probably junior high. We were not as close in junior high as we got in high school. Um, in junior high, I was actually even talking to some other friends um, about, you know, Angie, and they were telling me, you know, how Angie was always uh, so protective, and um, she, uh, Angie was kind of the quiet type, uh, but she can be real fierce, you know, towards bullies. Um, and a couple of the girls were even telling me how 
um, Angie stood up to a couple of bullies. Our ninth grade year is whenever um, Angie and I got close. I can remember um, Angie and I, you know, playing in our little <laughs> our little teenage schemes, and she would say she wanted me to come home with her, and like I would come to her house, and she would hide me in her closet. She would open the window, and I would come in, and like we were just in there, you know, chilling. Like nobody ever knew. Nobody never ever knew. I can remember Angie kind of going out of her room here and there. And then I do remember a couple of times getting in her closet. And actually, one of her first boyfriends, Ed, was just telling me how he remembers Angie sneaking him in and him staying in that closet, too. <laughs> she had this little way about her that was very, um, I just, I never remember ever having just one crossword with Angie. Like, I would have probably ghetto stomped somebody if they would have tried to mess with Angie because she was just so, she was just so precious, you know? She loved her brother. She loved her mom, even though her and her mom were going through teenage mom and daughter drama. But, you know, this, a lot of that was because, you know, what teenage kid likes their step-parent? You know, she just felt very disconnected yeah. there. And I think it caused her and her mom a lot of problems, maybe because him and her fought a lot. Casey said she's often wondered if Angela was hiding things from her, and if she had known, would she have been able to intervene in any way? But she also knows many who loved Angela have done this for the last quarter century, and the what-ifs can drive you crazy. The four or five of us that hung out in ninth and tenth grade, we were some pretty, we were, looking back, we were, uh, we were a bad little group as far as, like, you didn't mess with us. So, yes, we absolutely, um, you know, smoked marijuana and drank together. But we were very broken. We were broken, and pain recognizes pain, and I think that's why we were all so close, you know? We found our little clique where we felt acceptance, and my only regret is that me and Angie got separated, you know, because she ended up obviously getting around somebody who was evil and crazy. After Casey's expulsion from high school, she got deeper into drugs and then started working in strip clubs on the weekends to make ends meet. At age 22, after working in those clubs for like five years, almost five years, overdosing on drugs, just being in some horrible situations, um, I was in like a drunken and peeled out stupor, uh, and I had like taken a razor and tried to like slice my wrist. And um, whenever I woke up, like I just kind of blinked my eyes open, you know, and I was just so messed up. I just had big tears coming down my face, and I just like fell on the floor and I cried out to God and asked Him, you know, to please help me. That if He was real, would He please just get me out? of the situation I was in. That's all I knew to say. Help me. Help me. Casey and I first talked on the 19th anniversary of that day, the day she got clean and became a born-again Christian. She has dedicated her life since to helping others who suffer from addiction and helping them find peace and sobriety and in Christ. The day we spoke, Casey said she had just held an annual service honoring those recovering from addictions and those whose lives have been lost. 
she told the attendees this year about Angela. Sunday night, I actually um, put Angie's picture in the memorial that I did um, to honor the lives of those that, you know, I've lost, um, um, you know, just in the hardships of addiction and just the craziness of the, that I grew up in, you know. I actually had Angie's uh, picture in the memorial um, that I did Sunday night, and I got to say a few words about her to the, uh, the crowd that was there. I was able to show her picture and, you know, just share, share a little bit about her. There was a lot of drama in Angela's life, way more than the typical teenage angst. So many things were happening all at once, and she couldn't seem to get past her ex-boyfriend. By all accounts, despite their breakup, for whatever reason, Angela still held a torch for Stephen Lindsay. And although Angela had broken up with her longtime boyfriend early in the year, she had apparently been seeing him off and on during 1993. Both a Valentine's Day card and a Mother's Day card given to Deborah that year are signed from Angela and Stephen. And Nicholas remembers seeing him at the house they moved into in May and helping change his sister's tire in the driveway. I reached out to Stephen, but he didn't respond. His sister, who was also a teenager when Angela went missing and spoke to newspapers back in 1993, declined to be interviewed for this podcast. Stephen did tell newspaper reporters right after Angela went missing that she had come by his work several times that year in hopes of renewing their romantic relationship to no avail, according to him in a Hattiesburg American article in September 93. Add to a broken heart, Angela got a major surprise when she discovered that one of her classmates that she had always clowned around with in class was, in fact, her half-brother. But Angela did meet her real daddy uh, before she disappeared. He always assumed he didn't know that he... that. I was pregnant because mm-hmm. I'd see him around sometime and I'd have a baby and he, you know, he put two and two together, you know. So one, one day I run into him and he asked me direct, you know, about Angela. And I finally told him, I said, yeah, she's yours, you know. So he wanted to get to know her. So I put Angela one day in the car and we rode and I said, I'm going to let you meet your real daddy. Vicki Giles Miller said she remembers the day her dad, Don Giles, called her and her brother Jason over to tell them about Angela. Sadly, Jason Giles died of a heart attack at age 34 in 2010. See, my mom and I got divorced. So, like, I was 10 years old, and my daddy owned a gas station called Sunrise Quick Stop right past Middle High School. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not there anymore, but, um, I was working there. All I can remember is, Or whatever. I would ha- be happy to you know, 
About the same time, Deborah and Bill's relationship was getting more serious, and Bill had begun taking on even more of the role of a father. Sometime in the spring, while working at Burger King with longtime friend Kim Guy and Ruby Boucher, Angela mentioned to them that she was having a tough time getting along with her parents. Yeah, we actually met at Burger King. We worked together. Um, She really didn't have a place to stay at some point working with each other. And uh, Larry and I actually at the time were dating and she needed somewhere to stay. So seeing how she and I became pretty good friends because we worked together a lot. She actually came and lived with me and Larry. Her and her mother did not have a really good relationship with each other. And she was put out the house at 15. Um, so she just kind of stayed around place to place wherever she could. Now, I don't know how true that is. I just know when she and I became friends, she really didn't have anywhere to stay, and she did end up moving in with me and Larry because we did have an apartment. It wasn't a long stay, uh, and I can't really remember how long she stayed, so I couldn't tell you, but it wasn't very long. Um It was 93, and I want to say it must have been early in that year. But she did stay with us for a little while. And that time, um, I didn't know that she was having a relationship with Larry behind my back. But obviously that was happening, and I didn't know it at the time. Um, There was conflict with Larry and I, and... We ended up splitting up. Ruby Boucher, now Kelly, was 19 with a newborn when she and Larry Posey moved in together. Then they added Angela to the mix. It was not a good scene. When the couple fought, Larry turned to Angela. Before long, Angela and Larry were a couple, and Ruby had moved out. When I left, how I come to find out that them two were dating was... um. To make a long story short, her excuse for moving out was she was going to live with a grandmother in Louisiana. So she left, or so I thought. Larry and I got into an argument. Me and him split up. I left, moved out. And this is within a week's time. I was driving through town one day. And I happened to see her car in front of me, and I seen Larry's vehicle in front of her. Um, needless to say, she was following him around, I guess, because she didn't really know her way around Hattiesburg. Um, she and I actually got into a confrontation at his grandmother's house and got into a fight. Larry and Ruby's versions of this differ somewhat. Larry remembers that Ruby moved out prior to his brief relationship with Angela. Ruby said they were sneaking around behind her back. Whichever the case, co-workers recall Larry coming to both Burger King and later to Crystal's to see Angela during the time he was dating Ruby. Larry called me from Kuwait back in July, where he told me he was serving his sixth tour overseas. He said he is a staff sergeant with more than 25 years in the U.S. Army. They had some worries at one time. 
Uh, Ruby didn't know that we was dating. And that really, because well, they was, they was at friends at one time. And, um, and then they stopped being friends, whatever, and me and Angela ended up get, getting together. And one day, um, uh, I was going to drop my car off at my grandma's house. And we was going to take Angela's car and go get something to eat. And I guess Ruby seen us, so Ruby followed us over there. Um, and her and Angela had some words. Well, actually, Ruby had some words, and Angela didn't, didn't want to argue with her. Mm-hmm. And um, and that was it. And, and like I said, uh, that was the only thing that, that's the only time they had, you know, words. And Angela had told them that you left him, and, and, and which she did. Ruby had. Uh, she was with someone else, and uh, and she was like, I don't care, but you and I was friends at one time, and uh, she said, we stopped being friends, and you went your way, I went my way, and Larry and I ran into each other, and that was it, you know, so. Kim Guy, who worked with Angela and Ruby, told me she had a bad feeling about Larry because of the way he treated Ruby and Angela. That's what happened between Ruby and Angela for a little bit, but then it, but I know that whenever we were there on Ruby's days off, Larry would come and pick Angela up, and I don't know, he he just always seen me the creep, even whenever him and Ruby were together, he would still, like, Still, after Angela moved out, Ruby moved back in with Larry. She and I were supposed to be the best of friends, and that's when I found out that he was actually seeing her. So, um, me and her got into a confrontation. Um, He split us up. I went my way. They went their way, and supposedly they moved in together. They lived over there together for maybe, I don't know, it couldn't have even been a month. And, of course, he was going back and forth between him, between her and me, wanting to work things out with me, but he was with her now. So, she lived with him in that trailer for about a month. Things didn't work out between them two, and she moved out. Larry and I got back together, and I moved in over there into that same trailer with him. She moved in with me, um, and I was about to leave and go to uh, go back in the military. Um, after Angela and I dated, um, I went I went back to my ex, and um, we got married. Angela and I broke up. Um, she was saying, she kept telling me that she wanted to uh, go, uh, go back home and maybe work things out with, um, what's the guy's name? Lindsay, I guess that's his name. And I was like, all right, you know, that's cool. Uh, 
if I get back with Ruby, I'm just going to get married, you know? And and that was it. And I didn't hear no more from her for about, probably about two weeks. And I usually, I usually go through her there, and I didn't see her. Um, you know, uh, we just speak or whatever. She would give me the, because she worked at uh, Crystal. I think that was Crystal. And, uh, like I said, she don't speak. Or, uh, it was no, it was no bad feeling or anything because she, we had discussed this. She, she was gonna go back to him. I was gonna go back to her. Angela found out she was pregnant sometime in May with a February 1994 due date. Angela moved with her family from their longtime home in May to Bill's home on the other side of Petal in preparation for Deborah's marriage to Bill, but. According to Angela's friend Kim, Bill wouldn't be so welcoming to Angela when it was discovered that she had been seeing a black man who might be the father of her unborn child. years have changed the way a lot of people in America, including Mississippi, view interracial couples. But at the time, 1993, in the rural South, people often still turn their heads, or worse, to see a black and white couple. And according to people I spoke to, Bill was having none of it under his roof. Kim said it was Bill who forced Angela out of the house because she was seeing a black guy who may well have been the father of her unborn child. According to friends, the day Angela told Larry she was expecting was pretty rough. Do you remember Angela telling you about when she told Larry she was pregnant? And what did he say? Do you remember? Yeah, he was, he was upset. He didn't like that at all. Because if I'm not mistaken, I think this is during the time that Ruby didn't know about Angela. Larry told me and reporters back in 1993 that he and Angela had broken up about June. And despite comments from Ruby about her memories when Angela lived with her, no one else remembers Angela being involved with any other young men besides Stephen and Larry that year. I want to emphasize here, I am not suggesting either had anything to do with her disappearance. Rather, they both did have relationships with her in the months prior to her going missing. They are a significant part of her story in 1993. Both young men had, by their own accounts or newspaper interviews from 1993, moved on to other relationships. However, the timelines don't all match up to others' recollections. Granted, it has been 25 years. After the falling out between Angela and Ruby in the summer of 93, Angela began working at Crystal's fast food restaurant 
on Hardy Street in Hattiesburg. The location is now Topher's Rock and Roll Grill. By the end of the summer, Ruby was pregnant with Larry's son, who would be born in April of 1994. She and I ended up, I think I went by Crystal one day after finding out she was pregnant, and I was too, so we were pregnant at the same time. And she and I talked for a few minutes. She apologized for what happened. We squashed everything. Um, you know, and I think there might have been another time I, I seen her at that apartment that I was talk, telling you about where she stayed. Uh-huh. It seems like she and I met up there one time too and talked. It sounded like to me like she really didn't know who she was pregnant by. She didn't know if she was pregnant by Larry or if she was pregnant by Stephen. Kim, who had also left Burger King and had begun working at Crystal's, remembers the conversation that day between Ruby and Angela somewhat differently. I remember they were having a little spit bath. It was just like a camp out by, you know, like a little... Something about Angela was supposed to have been On August 28th, Deborah married Bill Stewart, and if you watch old video footage of the affair, Angela was all smiles, standing beside her mom as Deborah took her vows. Angela even caught the bouquet. Barely showing her pregnancy, Angela had settled down and was preparing to be a mother in just a few months' time. Less than two weeks before Angela went missing, her brother Nicholas said he recalls a conversation that didn't seem ominous at the time, but in hindsight, he wonders if she knew more than she was telling him and her family. One of the last conversations I remember Angela and I had was a few days after my mom's wedding. Angela looked me in the eye and said, Nicholas, promise me you'll never do drugs. You know, I love you. You're my brother, and I'd never lie to you. I'd done drugs to be a part of the popular crowd, and it's not worth it. Since I stopped the party in life, none of them friends will even talk to me now. I also remember, uh, you know, in the last few months, Angela not wearing makeup, and I one day I just said, why are you not wearing makeup no more? And she said, I just don't wear makeup no more. Looking back now, And seeing what she told me, I can understand now that she was going through a lot at the time. September 10th, about 1 a.m., is the last reported and confirmed sighting of Angela Freeman. Kim Guy said Angela was her confidant during this very troubled time in her own life. She had gotten married and had a baby in early 1993 and was in an abusive relationship. And after she lost Angela, Kim would attempt to end her own life in the fall of 93. The pain of going back to these memories was palpable as I listened to her. Kim said she remembers distinctly the last time she ever saw her longtime friend and co-worker. Two or three days before she went missing, Larry picked her up at Crystal. Oh, they were going to the store. Um... That's what I remember Angela telling me, that she was going to be back, and um, but I had to leave because my shift was over, and I didn't think nothing like that would come about. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, she was only supposed to be gone a little bit, but from my understanding, 
which I didn't come back on the clock for another two or three days. And then I found out she was gone. Just a refresher. Angela was in the process of moving in with a coworker named Paula Kraft the week she disappeared. My team has tried for weeks to contact her, but she has not returned any of our messages to date. Angela left her mom's after dropping off her car payment on Wednesday afternoon, September 8th. Paula went to Slidell, about 90 minutes from Hattiesburg, to see her mother the evening of September 9th. She told the Hattiesburg American in 1993. When she returned in the wee hours of the morning, September 10th, Angela was not there and had left a note, so Paula thought nothing of her absence. Reports from the time all say Angela was last seen between 1 and 1.30 a.m. Friday. But Chris Mooney, who worked at Pizza Hut and saw Angela there arguing outside the restaurant with Stephen, told me he believes it had to be before midnight because of the time the restaurant closed and how long it took to clean up. The newspaper quoted Stephen, saying he went back inside Pizza Hut to finish his duties, and when he went back outside, Angela and her car were gone. That same September morning, around 3 a.m., Larry Posey says he was headed to work in downtown Hattiesburg to his job in the mailroom at the Hattiesburg American newspaper. He had a big day planned and stopped by Crystal's to see if Angela was working and just to check in on her. Remember. Even though they had broken up, according to him, he still believed he was likely the father of her unborn baby. Angela's car would be discovered by her uncle, Randy Freeman, between 3.30 and 6.40 a.m. that same morning at the foot of the Monted Bridge. I come through there, Angela wasn't at work. So that wasn't unusual for you to go by there? No. Okay. it was was like a... Because it's the only thing that time of the morning. Right. <laughs> right. So, because uh, I had to be at work uh, probably about 4.30, 5 o'clock. In the morning? And so I just, yes. So I just come through there and just grab something. And, I, and it would speak, hey, how you doing, or whatever. And that was it. And um, I came through there. And it was nice and all. She was working. Like, oh, okay. Interestingly, Angela's ex-boyfriend, possible father of her baby, would not only go by to see her at nearly the exact time of her disappearance, but marry Ruby, also pregnant with his child, the same day. We didn't have no big wedding plan or anything like that. Uh, but I'm going to take half a day off and then the next day off, you know? Right. So, um, and that was it. And... When it, I guess when we did get married that rest of the day, and then when I came back to work, like a couple days later, that's when everything, you know, it was like big story, like, you know, what happened. I'm like, okay. Well, how did you find out? You know? How did you find out? Because I worked at the newspaper company. So you saw it in the and newspaper that, that before the, the law enforcement contacted you and said, hey, did you know her? Right, right. So, so I was thinking, I don't know, there's no way, you know, you know, that something would happen to her. I'm like, because it was, it was too close to 
the hole. She can't. There's no way that could happen, man. You know, and everybody like this belief. I'm thinking that as they went on, I'm thinking, was she upset because I was getting married? You, you understand what I'm saying? And I was thinking she didn't know who she was pregnant by. If she was pregnant by me, I was just gonna hate her. Um, I was just gonna have uh, help her take care of the baby. I mean, either or, you know. Right. So, but and it, it went on and on and on. I'm like, she got it. And the next thing you know, uh, I was contacted. So how long after, how long after she disappeared, did the police contact you? May, I'm thinking maybe about a week or two. Ruby also remembered that same time period. Now the day that she come up missing. Uh, was the day that Larry and I got married. Like, and that forever, I'll never, can, I can never forget that because that happened the same day, which to me is the oddest thing. Him, I remember the day he and I had to, the day he and I went to get married, he worked. So he left for work sometime early that morning. And from my understanding, from what I heard later on down the road, um, he actually stopped by Crystal's to see if she was working. I didn't know that at the time, but he supposedly stopped by to see if she was working, and then he went on to work. Because, see, we were staying in that trailer out in Oak Grove, so, which is, the Crystal's is on the way down Hardy Street. And then he worked at Hattiesburg American downtown, and that's all—that's right on Main Street at mm-hmm. the time. So that was probably, uh, I don't know, 30-minute drive. When he got off of work, we went and got married. <laughs> <laughs> and then a, a couple of days later, you know, we get a knock on the door to interview Larry and me about her disappearance. What I was told was that, you know, sometime that night she went to Pizza Hut and tried to work things out with Steven. They got into an argument. She left upset, and then they find her car on Old Monitor Bridge. Mm-hmm. Abandoned. That's what I was told. And what did y'all think when you got that knock on the door? I was shocked. I'm not going to lie. But I can tell you this, at the same time when they said she was missing, um, and just the whole thing, like, I knew immediately when they said the cops were saying, well, her car was found, on, if you, back where, you know, Old Monitor Bridge is, I mean, that's just like uh, way out in the middle of nowhere, okay? Out in the woods, you could say, and that bridge has like a stigmatism to it. Like people think it's haunted because it's been burnt down two times, and and Angela was very scared of the dark. Yeah. So So, you knew she wouldn't have gone out there. No. uh, Yeah. Exactly. I I don't know. I know she would not have went out. That I do know about her. Like she was really scared of dark and. And that car was the only thing that girl had that was actually hers that she owned, you know, for some young girl that's out on the street, jumping from place to place, trying to find her way to leave her car abandoned. Nada. That 
would not have happened. No way possible. And then in the dark, too, in the middle of the night, no way. I thought something bad had happened to her. I thought that someone took her out there. I don't know. Like, I just know she would not have willingly went out to that bridge alone. I just know she wouldn't have. Did she? Unless she was with someone. Someone. Right. Did you ever have any doubt that Larry had anything to do with it? No, none, because it's impossible. He was with me. Right. And the only time he left my site was when he went to work, and there's just feasibly not enough. There, was, there couldn't have been enough time for him to get clear calls from. That old runner bridge, it would have taken him, it, if, even if it was feasible, it, it would have taken him over probably an hour to get from where we lived to meet up with her and then to drive all the way out there and then he had to hike it back into town. And, and think that Larry would do something like that? Absolutely not. Yeah. I mean, we, now Larry and I have had our issues and, you know, back then when you're young, your caddy, you know, I'm not going to say he was the best husband. He wasn't. But to hurt someone, no. I don't believe he could do that. In Larry's initial interview with reporters, he said he thought Angela was just goofing around, pretending to run off and would come back home. But as the story continued, he said he was left clueless. Stephen gave early interviews to reporters and told Deborah on the phone that Friday morning, after the car was found, that he didn't know where Angela was, according to Deborah. But the Freeman family says he has never spoken to them again since that day. You know, the one person that, he came to my house, okay? He eat my food. We sat and talked. He's dating my daughter. He's been dating my daughter mm-hmm. for several years. And when she come up missing, he didn't come around. He didn't call me. He didn't say... Hey, what you want me to do? We even got a crew of people who went down there and looked in the woods ourselves. He didn't bother. Both of Angela's exes, Larry and Stephen, along with many other people close to Angela, were questioned by investigators, according to newspaper accounts, in the days and weeks following Angela's disappearance. So, if everyone is telling the truth, and no one who knew Angela went out there with her, then how did her car wind up at the Monted Bridge, 18 miles outside of town? By all accounts, Angela was terrified of the dark. She even refused to watch scary movies. Everyone who knew Angela repeated the same statement. She wouldn't have gone out to the Monted Bridge alone. Her brother Nicholas, her uncle Randy Freeman who found the car, her Uncle Roger, whom she had lived with and confided in, and her friends. Casey Prynjanese has no doubt. The fact that it was at Monted Bridge really creeps me out because yeah. uh, that place just has a horrible reputation. Yeah. There's been some awful things that have happened there. Did y'all ever and go out there when y'all would sneak out? You know, that's a good question. I don't think that we ever did. I remember... The times that I went to Modern Bridge because it was just a few because that place just really always creeped me out. Like 
I never cared for that place. Right. It just was something very eerie about it. I don't remember me and Angie ever going out there, but like I said, we weren't scared of much. I do remember being creeped out by that bridge, though. And um, I think for Angie to have gone there to meet, to meet somebody, it was somebody that she trusted and she loved. Um, if it even happened like that, if she, I mean, her car was there, did she drive there? It seems like maybe she drove there and she met someone. Um, I don't know. I just don't know. Perry County officials came to the bridge, made a judgment that she was likely a runaway, and released the car back to Deborah without collecting evidence. And that 1984 Honda Accord that had been Angela's most prized possession became her mother's daily nightmare as it sat behind her home for the next two years. We, we drove the car home and we parked it in the back of my yard. That was the worst thing mistake ever done. It drove me crazy. <laughs> I look at that car like that car was supposed to tell me something. It never did. <laughs> While the car wasn't giving up any of its secrets, law enforcement began gathering evidence and questioning those closest to Angela, trying to make sense of what had happened to this missing pregnant girl. And friends began questioning some of the secrets they held in the last few weeks before she went missing and statements they heard in the months afterward. In the next episode of Telling Lives, we're going to tell you about the early investigation into the disappearance of Angela Freeman. Telling Lives is brought to you by reporter, writer, and host Elizabeth Christian, producer Brian Manuel, associate producer Jerry Clark, reporter and researcher Alina Noakes, audio editor Andrew Vance Miller, Audio transcriptionist Lance Christian, research assistants Rhett Williams, Marilyn Barfoot, Trinity Baugh, and Abigail Jones, photographers Abigail Jones and Grace Miller, original music by Nicholas Freeman. If you like this episode, subscribe to Telling Lives Podcast on your favorite podcast app. And if you have any information about the disappearance of Angela Freeman, contact us at tellinglivespod at gmail.com. There is a $12,000 reward for anyone with information leading to the arrest of the person responsible for Angela Freeman's disappearance. Contact Rusty Keys at the University of Southern Mississippi Police Department. Special thanks goes to Louisiana College for partial funding support for this project. Luke 8, 17.